This is a Crow's Nest podcast. It was technically last week, but I want to thank you all for one year of Titanic Talkline, and I'm really excited to present this super, super, super special interview with Don Lynch. Enjoy! Ahoy, and welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia, and today I am joined by someone who doesn't need an introduction, so uh, I'm not going to give too much of one. It is the one and only Don Lynch. Um, how are you, Don? And I would like to let everyone know that I'm running super late, so I'm just really grateful that he still came. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. Awesome. I'm I'm really lucky because I got to hear you do a talk um, a couple weeks ago where you you talked in depth about your experience on the Cameron film and then on your experience with the, um, was it a documentary or like, would it, you call it? It was, it oh, was yeah. Ghosts of the Abyss, a 3D yes. IMAX documentary. Yes. Mm, I that, say IMAX, IMAX is technically um, the, the company, but it's called large format, but we all know it as IMAX. Gotcha. Sure. That makes sense. And that came out in 2003? 2000, probably 2000, 2003, 2000. something around there. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I, I'm just making sure I got the timeline right. That was really fascinating to look at the behind the scene, because I think that for anyone who's a fan of the movie, you know, you've gone and watched the behind the scenes documentaries and you've got the book and you have, you know, all of those things. But hearing you talk about the the revisit was really interesting because I think we don't really think too much about that, maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. Yeah, Maybe. I think about it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Well, I really liked hearing about it because you were also able to show a lot of things like how how much it's changed really since, you know, all that footage and the movies being filmed in 97 and how much forensically and to the wreck has just changed between then, too. Well, and, and a lot of the forensics are because Jim was able to go down there and dive more in 2001 and then he went back in 2005 and his studying of the wreck and the debris and everything has given us more insight into how the ship broke apart is when it went down. Yeah. And I, I've talked to a couple of people on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the show before who have been in the Titanic community for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And, you know, they remember the discovery of, you know, the the wreck in 85 with Bob Ballard and how just fundamentally that, that sort of changed the Titanic historical um I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. The, the, the understanding, I guess you might say. Because exactly. We, in spite of the evidence and in spite of the testimony of the survivors, we just hung on to the fact that the ship went down in one piece. And yet any you know person who ever built ships could tell you a ship that long could not have gone down by the bow and not split in half. And we just all sort of ignored them until they found it in two pieces based upon the fact that the inquiries claimed it went down in one piece uh, Lightoller, the second officer, then of course Colonel Gracie, and then Lawrence Beasley, who wrote books immediately afterwards, both kind of followed that pattern. And the interesting thing with Beasley is, is that one lady I knew who was in his boat, and she always swore it broken too, and she said the people around her talked about it. <laughs> and yet Lawrence Beasley was in that boat, and his book, he said it went down in one piece. And so, you know, it's embarrassing that we hung on to that the way we did. It's, I think it boils down to that whole who gets to tell the narrative thing where if, mm. you know, like you were just saying, Lightoller being the, the highest survive, uh, ranking officer there, it's like, I said this happened. And then a bunch of other people who are reasonably high up go, uh-huh, mm, yep, I, I sign off on that too. And yeah. I second <laughs> and I third it. Then it's like, 
stamped it its fact. And, you know, it took, I can't do math really quickly, but it took 70 odd years for them yes. to then be like, actually, we went and we looked at it with our physical eyeballs and we we see it's uh-huh. in two pieces. And, yeah, exactly. And and yet all these witnesses at both inquiries kept saying that the ship broke in two and they described it in detail. And somebody even, you know, like one person said it was like cutting it with a knife. Somebody else said you could see things falling out of the aft part, all that sort of stuff. And yet, you know, we just didn't believe them. As silly as it sounds, there's a very vis- visceral part of the movie, you know, when the ship breaks in half. Yes. And I didn't see this until I saw it again, you know, as an adult on the big screen, a porthole just kind of goes woo across. Yes the screen and i had never noticed that before but all of a sudden you're just watching this massive and i had seen the big piece so by now i saw how big and thick the metal of these portholes were and it just went flying like a hair tie that you let loose yeah yeah and and you know it's great it was a great visual because of course when they went back and reissued the movie in 3d they had this porthole which oh here's something for 3d that'll really jump out at the audience it does does. yeah yeah I, I noticed it because it was in 3D. It was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> what, what was that? And it's such a small little detail, but it it demonstrates the incredible force. Like, and again, I think that's, you know, the reason I go back to the breakup and people denying it is because I'm like, that must have just been such a monstrous moment to witness. Mm-hmm. This massive behemoth with yes. people still on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's breaking in half. And Stephen Beale talks about it a bit in his book where how kind of then as in now it was sort of quote unquote easy to ignore the people who were saying that because a lot of them were women now i don't know how true necessarily like how i don't know the exact breakdown of who was at the time saying things but yeah but it was the men at the inquiries who were saying it broken too so you know and yet we ignored them too that's fair all right well you know i guess it just goes to show you how how much a narrative you need to be preserved shall be preserved but yes yes you, I also forgot to ask you, which I normally ask everybody to tell them, tell me a little bit and everyone about your individual Titanic story, because especially your story has brought you to so many incredible places. Just um, how did this all, where did we start? Yeah, well, I, I like to say you're born with it. You know, it's like people who collect stamps, you know, they can't explain why they like it. Fair. And I think there is, but but it's easy to be born with this because it's such a phenomenal story. You know, the biggest ship in the world, it's maiden voyage, you know, it's unsinkable. And so um, I remember seeing, you know, the 1953 Titanic as a child and thinking that was a really cool movie. But when I went to school on Monday, everybody was talking about it. You know, it was like it was a Saturday afternoon feature on TV. And on Monday morning, all the kids were saying, did you see Titanic on Saturday? Um, but and then in 1973, when I was in high school, the Poseidon Adventure came out and I went and saw it. And that movie holds up really well on the big screen. And so um, I wanted to know what was going on, what were real shipwrecks about. I was more into nonfiction. And so I went to the library, checked out some books. And one of them was A Night to Remember. And so, of course, I read it and then read it again. You know, I just started, went over and started it all over again and then um, started just doing some research on my own. And I wrote the Harland and Wolf and they recommended the Titanic Historical Society. And I joined them and then I bought every back issue of their magazine ever. And they had always made survivors honorary members. And yet they a lot of the you know, most many of the survivors were immigrants, meaning they were like, you know, teenagers, maybe 20 
And the society was formed after 50 years. And yet, where were these people when they should have only been in the early 70s? And of course, the children, you know, who would, you know, should have all still been alive, most of them when I was first got interested in it. And so I started tracking them down. And in doing that, then you end up getting their story. I'd write to libraries and they'd say, well, you know, we don't know where they are now, but here's a newspaper interview with them from the time and things like that. And um, it kind of became sort of an expert on the people, I guess you'd say. But that's where the story lies. You know, if there hadn't been any survivors, we wouldn't know what happened to the Titanic. We could only study the wreck and we wouldn't even know where to have looked for it. And so, um, you know, it just kind of became that. And I was asked to become the historian for the Titanic Historical Society, which I've been since. And then um, eventually, um, when Madison Press wanted to do this coffee table book, um, I was you know, asked or, you know, asked them, I can't remember how it got started, but somehow I was chosen to write the text for it. And then of course, Jim used that book to pitch the movie to Fox. And then I was, <laughs> and became the historian for the movie. And then Jim, you know, used me again to go back for Ghosts of the Abyss. And so it's just, you know, one of those things that just keeps going, 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 you know, you mm-hmm. kind of dig a hole you can't climb out of, but <laughs> I've certainly, you know, made wonderful friends over the years, um, gotten to know, you know, well, a bunch of the survivors, obviously now we're gone but just you know many of my friends are people who also are titanic people titanic enthusiasts titanic historians you name it and you know it's really benefited me in a lot of ways personally and um been been wonderful for me out of all the experiences i'm sure that this is you know a question you might get a lot but like out of all the amazing experiences you've had to have from you know working on the film and being invited to talk and writing this book what has been maybe not the most like prestigious or what is like what is in your mind when you think about all the stuff you've gotten to do what's like your favorite little memory you're like oh I'm just so glad that I got to do that even if it's a big opportunity but just for you what is the thing that just kind of makes you happy when you think about it every time well um you know to make me happy I guess is you know having worked on the movie and having been in the movie you know, that I, I have the one scene. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I was young, <laughs> long ago, you know, I always remember when I was little, you know, not little, but just say young, you know, I used to think I never wanted to be an actor, but I always thought, wouldn't it be great to just be in one really good movie? Just sure. to have one, you know, that you could always point to a really great movie and say, yeah, I was in there. Yeah. Like, I hey, I that. was in Casablanca. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. You know, <laughs> something like that. But I remember thinking at the time how cool it would have been to have been in 1941, you know, the Steven Spielberg movie about World War II. Ah, it it just looked like such a fun movie to have made. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it have been fun to have been in that? Wouldn't it be great to just be in one movie? So mm-hmm. I have to say if I have sort of a, a favorite, I mean, obviously there have been, you know, emotional moments, diving to the wreck, um, mm-hmm. being on the wreck on 9-11, you know, was a big, big deal for me. I want to talk about that later. 9-11 is a big deal for everybody, obviously. But <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so, you know, but having been able to walk the decks of the Titanic and walk the rooms as they looked back then, and experienced them the way the people I had talked to had experienced them, so to speak. Um, that was really special. That was incredible for me. I imagine so. I, I'm sure that you've probably been to the um, at least one of the museums before. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, there's no way you haven't. But yeah. um, you know, they have the recreation of the the grand staircase with mm-hmm. the dome. And, you know, that's the closest a lot of people are going to get to. And it's it's beautifully done. It yeah. looks wonderful. And I do say you get a little moment. You turn the corner, come into that st- structure and just see the beautiful staircase and the clock and the dome. Even, you know, it's a replica, but even for a moment, you just kind of go, oh, wow. Yeah. 
Well, and, and on the movie set, because the interior sets were on sound stages, but they were multi-story right. high. And you could literally walk out of Rose's suite, down the hall, down the grand staircase, several flights of stairs, through the reception room and into the dining room, and never know you weren't on a ship. Because, you know, all four walls were there. The ceiling was there. Everything was there. And later they would determine if they needed to cut into it to maybe mm -hmm. get, you know, some more ventilation, maybe bring in some bigger lights, things like that. But when they built it, they built it intact so that it could be filmed from any angle. If you were in any of those rooms, corridors, whatever. And so, yeah, just like you said, with when you go to these exhibits, rounding the corner and seeing the staircase is pretty great. But to actually come out of a room, walk down a hallway, walk down the staircase several flights, and all the way into the dining room, that was over the top. That was phenomenal. I'm trying to picture just what that must have been like. You know, I, I, I don't know much about the actual how to make a movie. I, I assume that there's a lot of movie magic involved with, yeah. with certain things. But the more I hear about the making of Titanic, I'm kind of just like, they didn't rely a whole lot on movie magic for many of these moments. It was just real in-person practical effects. Well, and it wouldn't be today. Today, it would be movie magic. True. Today, it would be like Avatar. It would all be green screen and everything would be filled in in the background. Yeah. And you wouldn't have nearly so many sets. But that level of technology didn't exist 25 years ago. Right. And so, you know, it was probably the last, you know, say, era, you know, period of time when a movie could be made, which would involve such elaborate sets, mm -hmm. I just don't think, and even then, not all of them, like you see scenes in the lounge, they never made a lounge set, you know, they made a miniature. And so some of that is movie magic. Right. But, um, but in other rooms, like the dining room, it's the real dining room, the staircase is the staircase, the suite is the suite, that sort of thing, the gymnasium, you know, is mm -hmm. they filmed, they made a whole gymnasium. And today, I don't think that would happen to that extent at all. So it, it was something that just won't ever be repeated, at least not for a movie. You know, somebody sure. may duplicate something someday that tourists can go see. But you know, <laughs> as far as what we were doing, that was pretty much it. I was thinking back to um, Gone with the Wind, for example, and you have some of these beautiful sweeping shots. Um, of you know these manors and villas and I'm trying to remember the specific scene I'm thinking I think it's a hospital um, and they you know they pan over the town and you can just tell that this is a soundstage and it has to be because as you were just discussing the technology simply did not exist to CG construct the you know the manor of Tara on the grounds yeah. at the time that Vivian Lee was running around we just you had to make the movie that way because it was out of necessity but I personally feel that for some things it gives it um, I, this sounds almost like fake credit, but it gives it that timelessness because, you know, you may do with what you had and, you know, yeah. you didn't, you couldn't render, you couldn't go into Unreal Engines and say, make me a virtual Titanic. If, you know, Jim, as you said, had to go and build me a Titanic. Yeah. Well, they had matte paintings, you know, where you could paint up part of the backdrop and they'd had those sure. in silent films, but you couldn't get a lot of motion on those. You know, yeah. you couldn't get, you know, unless you had miniatures or something like that. And so, you know, the special effects, um, every so often you'll see a movie that surprises you from that long ago that the special effects were as good as they were. Mm -hmm. But today's audience looks at it and says special effects. Now, maybe in that time they did as well, but they took it for granted, you know, that you were going to see special effects. You know, today we want to see something that passes for the real thing. I think nobody had that expectation 100 years ago.
That's a fair point. A movie was just a completely different thing. And I've talked about it a little bit when we compare the sinking sequences from A Night to Remember to um, Cameron film. And not in a negative way, but just in sort of what technology was available at the time and how movies were made and how audiences wanted their movies to be made. Um, And, you know, one of the things that we were discussing is that, like, in in reality, the sinking may not have been as dramatic as the Cameron film or or the initial iceberg striking sequence, I think is what I'm specifically referring to. Um, it may not have been as, you know, that 30 seconds of iceberg right at, running up and down the stairs and screaming orders and yelling, but it makes for great cinema. And I think it's an yeah. iconic sequence. I it, it gets my heart racing every time. And every time I watch, I'm like, but what if they miss the iceberg? And they never <laughs> do. But, you know, watching the the, the 50s movie, it was more subdued and it was very much a product of his time. And now I'm learning a little bit more realistic, but in the way we make movies in 2023, I don't think people would quite want their film structured that way, which is. No, no. And I, I actually saw a lecture once and it was by a, a, a gentleman who was the grandson of one of the bandsmen from the Titanic. Ooh. And he put together clips from Titanic 19 or, you know, the 97 and a night to remember from 1958 where the scenes matched. Um, mm-hmm. For example, what's going on on the bridge, you know, when they strike the iceberg. And then even when Andrews explains to Smith what's happening, and he said, A Night to Remember is like watching a British naval training film because it's so slow, so subdued, and it couldn't possibly have been so subdued. Um, in the 1958 film, you know, they're sitting in Andrew's cabin, and Andrews is calmly explaining to Smith that they only have so much time, and he might as well have served him tea because you don't see him jumping up and saying, well, we've got to get the people in the boats. It's just <laughs> like, well, really? Well, how long do we have? You know, this sort of thing. And it's it's too calm. It is unbelievably calm. It's unrealistically calm. It just, there is no way they just sort of stood around and, right. you know, sort of talked about what, what was happening and that they would only have an hour to live. It just, it's unbelievable. And I know people love A Night to Remember as their favorite and everybody has their favorite and that's fine, but you have to acknowledge that there is no perfect movie. <laughs> you, know, no. you can't say 1958 and Night to Remember is perfect. And it's like, no, oh no, no. And they say, well, and they don't have those fictional characters. And it's like, oh, there are so many fictional characters in A Night to Remember. They just don't have them as the main characters. Right. But anyway, but they're both great movies. And Tom, Jim actually, you know, tips his hat to A Night to Remember. There are a few scenes that are very, very, like when Collapsible B drops down onto the deck, and then a man lands down on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's taken directly from a night to remember. And basically what Jim is doing is he's acknowledging, you know, this mm-hmm. earlier movie and some great scenes in it. There's a lot of direct homage, like that specific scene you're referring to, to the film. Obviously he has great respect for it. That was not meant to say oh, yes. It's a really good movie. There, yes. It's just interesting to see how, you know, a movie made in 1997 versus a movie made in 1958, which conceptually is not that far apart. But socially and sort of uh, in in the way of our of human development, they may as well have been made for completely different groups of human beings. Yeah, yeah. In a way, I guess you might even say they were. You know, that both each of them was. Yeah, the times are just so different. I mean, even we look at how the media post sinking was handled, and the way that you know, we make media about the Titanic now versus how media was made about Titanic in 1912 versus how it was made in the 50s or 70s. 
it's also profoundly different. I remember watching, I, I did not make it all the way through SOS Titanic. I am sorry, everyone. I just <laughs> I simply did not. Um, but that movie was once again, made for a completely different demographic of people. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting to watch all three approaches. I'm not going to argue that, oh, this movie sucks and this one is great. All three of them have very different audiences, but it's just so interesting to see three profoundly different takes on the exact same thing. It is. It is. And it's interesting because when you think of the 1950s audience was uh, even by 1958, when more and more people had their own televisions, you were still your audience was still everyone. Families went to the movies. By 1997, your demographic is 18 to 25. And realistically, it was like 12 to 25. And, (laughs) you know, and so it, it really was for a different audience. You had to have these young characters to make the love story, to draw people in, that sort of thing. And it is, it's a very, very different demographic. And in fact, you know, people forget about the 1953 movie and it was on TV recently and I watched it. And the one thing, like, like one, one thing about Jim's movie is that, you know, his takes place during the sinking on the ship versus in the lifeboats. You know, you see the ship go down from the perspective of the people on board versus earlier movies where it's from the perspective of those in the lifeboats. But Titanic of 1953, you actually get to know real people who have to separate. And they aren't like Jack and Rose where they just met. I mean, you know, Richard and Julia have been married for 25 years. And even though they're having marital problems, now they're suddenly realizing they have to resolve those problems in about 10 seconds because they're going to part forever. And the 1953 movie really captures the separation of couples of families more because you're more invested in that family and that couple than you are in any couple or family in any of the other movies. I want to, cause I knew I was going to get sucked into a wormhole if I started talking about families and people and emotion, yes. um, but we're just going to do it for the rest of the episode probably, because you said that you like to talk about people and their stories as well. And sure. yeah. And that's, that's the part of Titanic that initially got me interested was I began to learn about, it's like, Oh, it's not, you know, Titanic is not one person's story, you know, Mm -hmm. full disclosure for everyone who's heard this before i was eight when the movie came out when cameron's movie came out so i was quite young so titanic was sort of the film was my introduction to the event so my first comprehensive understanding of it was this one person's perspective which is not bad but it means that that's my my baseline where it started and then so jack and rose were kind of like at the forefront of my brain and it took yeah. me a while to figure out they weren't real and uh, all of that i was a kid sure, but, sure you know as i got older and started learning about more people's stories that's what became more fascinating to me was because you suddenly see the perspective from the second officer and the baker and this one woman that i didn't know existed who survived in second class that has a story to tell you're like oh my gosh you you find all these interesting perspectives and the thing that started hitting home to me was reading all the testimonies from the left behind women and children, mm-hmm. their accounts. I mean, there was a book published, I think that was called like the city of, of widows that I might be mistaking, but it was I, just, I, yeah, I think that's the title about like mm-hmm. all the the ladies in Southampton who were yes. widowed by the it, sinking. Yes, exactly. And it was just, it was interesting to start learning about how this loss ripples outwards at the time, because it's not to say that losing a member of your family now isn't a big deal, but I'm legally allowed to work. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can go get a job and, and help my family in, you know, being a 35 year old, maybe having children at the time, if I just lost my husband, who had been the sole breadwinner for our family for our whole lives, and I have no work experience and never have, 
what am I supposed to do? Yeah. It's it's a profound. So not only I have to mourn my husband, I have to put on his boots and his coat basically and run the family in a way that you're neither allowed nor prepared for at that time. And it was very interesting learning about that sort of how how tragedy compounds. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and one lady I knew, you know, she didn't want to get into a lifeboat because she said it was, you know, quote unquote, wicked that a single girl like her could get into a lifeboat, but a married man with a wife and children to support could not. And she just thought that was terrible. And she and only got into a boat because someone came up with a baby and they couldn't get into the boat and someone had to take the baby. And and she figured, well, it's the only hope the baby has of surviving because, you know, she also, and she, you know, I learned a lot from her because mm-hmm. she, we know in 2020 hindsight, if you got into a lifeboat, you survived. She didn't know that. So in her mind, the ship's going down, I'm probably going to die. And then, but then this baby came into her life and suddenly I have to rescue a baby or the baby will die too, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then that saved her life. Wow. I think I'm sure there's so many little stories like that, that we either don't know about or are never going to know about, or, you know, people who tried to do little acts who maybe didn't make it. Yes. And Yeah we'll just never hear about because you know we hear about the heroics of like charles jachin who was like oh you don't want to get on a lifeboat i'll just throw you in then yeah How about that yeah. and you know i'm sure there may have been other men doing same things who maybe didn't make it and we'll just yeah. never get to hear about their you know the little things they tried to do or people mm-hmm. tried to do to help oh i think so i you know two of the very <clears throat> last bodies found was i think a, a middle eastern girl maybe about 14 or something and a crew member, and they were both clinging to the same life ring. And now, did he help her, you know, with the life ring, you know, or did, you know, did she have the life ring and she was willing to share it with him? And yet they both died. So you're right, we'll never know. But it seems to me that somehow the fact that two completely disparate people were clinging to this one life ring, there had to have been a story there, but it died with them. Yeah, and it, the, finding out little things like that make me appreciative of the tiny stories that you do get to learn because they're just little insights into each individual person's life. And, mm, yes. and I imagine that also, because I've spoken to a couple of people who have dove down to the wreck before. And I also imagine that when you know all these stories, going down there and looking at the thing the object itself, almost the elephant in the room. Yeah. And you get to see it. What is that like? Well, you know, I, knowing all these stories, I, I dove to the wreck twice. And right. on one of the dives, and I don't remember which one, um, I kept thinking about the survivors. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd look and think, okay, you know, here's where this lifeboat was launched and these people were in it. And here's the door that, you know, Mrs. Snyder came out of when she and her husband were, you know, came up on deck and here's where the band played or whatever. And then, you know, the next time or the other time I kept thinking about the victims and I'm sorry. Yeah. Because here, here, the victims here, here is where the band played, you know, obviously that there's a group. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lump them in with the survivors and like, you know, here is where boat eight left and this is where Mr. and Mrs. Strauss stood and where she wouldn't get in and things like that. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, I had, two opportunities and one of which I focused on the victims, the other one I focused on the survivors and their stories as they related to the bow section, which is the only part I got to see. Right. 
was it just a lot like i feel i feel as though if i saw the ship i would either be in that sort of wonderstruck awe or i would immediately have a panic attack and that that's not meant to be a joke it's just sort of yeah. like whoa oh it's, it's it's huge and it's there and it's it's in this state yeah it's 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 incredible. Part of it, well, part of the dyes, you know, there were working dyes. And so you are kind of preoccupied with that. You know, we sure. went to sightseeing. But um, you also, you get a very small porthole to look out of. And the yeah. side of the submersible is very thick. And so you can't look off to the side the way you could through an airplane or a car window or something. You can only look straight up. So you are limited there. And, yeah. you know, if you were in this perfect, you know, glass bubble where you could look all the way around at everything around you i think you'd be overwhelmed but you know you see what you can see and you just take that in and of course we had cameras outside and we had monitors you know their cameras were you know the 3d imax cameras they were tilting they were panning zooming and i kept wanting to look at the monitors because the cameras were seeing more than i could and i had to remind myself don you can see all of that footage later you need to look at the real thing. And I would stare out the porthole at whatever I could see out there. But but I it, the things that kind of impressed me that I did see, um, it's more colorful than it seems on film. For some reason in real life, like the greens are more green and, you know, the corrosion is more corroded looking. And just to me, the colors are a little more brilliant. And I don't know why that would be because we were using high def film. Um, but um, the... Other thing that impressed me was that I knew where I was, and that really surprised me. I think I talked about that at the when I when you you saw me speak. You did, but I would love to hear about it again because it would <laughs> it, it, well it helped visualize for me too exactly yeah. how big this wreck is. Well, and you know, in the movies, they always come up to the bow, and then there it is, towering over them with light from behind, you know, whatever. But you know, the we seen. Yeah, exactly. And whereas we came up to the side, and my first dive, I was diving with Jim. And he just basically said, Don, there's your Titanic. And I had studied the story. Um, Ken Marshall, who did the illustrations for the book and everything, the paintings, and um, he studies the ship. I mean, he knows every wire stay. He knows the perimeter of every porthole, um, you know, this sort of thing. And so we're rising up and I recognized where I was, that I could just see a little portion of the hull and I knew where I was. And that impressed me that I knew the Titanic, the ship itself, better than I thought I did. So that that was really exciting for me. And, you know, and that's something I, I probably could never, will, will never repeat. But, you know, it was just, it was something completely unexpected and very exciting. I can see that being a really, really profound moment, because like you said, you know, you studied the things and you've read all the books and you have this sort of conceptual knowledge of this thing I keep saying thing but you know yeah. it's almost like Titanic's not it's almost not real you've just you, you spend all your time in the mythos for so long that when you finally get to see the real thing I'm sure it's exciting to be able to put those pieces together like oh that's the entrance to the first class dining room and that's the davit that yeah. everyone sees a picture of it's yeah. uh-huh. able to be able to be like those are the things Yes. Well, it's like one of the survivors, a lady in Sweden, um, I, I want to say, no, please, she's still alive when they found the wreck, but she, in her old age, couldn't reconcile the Titanic you hear about all the time, you know, this this great, you know, uh, cultural icon, 
versus the shipwreck she was in because <laughs> she'd hear all these you know stories and think she'd have to remind herself i was there you know it's like you go see the movie titanic and think wow you know i was there and so you know that was for her it was sort of that thing because it had become such a cultural phenomenon that she had a hard time reconciling that that was this horrible shipwreck she had been through this one that was always in the papers so to speak that's really I'd never considered the that sort of impact on survivors and that this experience you've had becomes part of the the, like the cult the the mythology of the world yeah the the folklore everything yeah yeah it's it's you know it's like you gotta stop and think about it you know is that really you know I'm putting words in their mouth obviously but was, was that really where I was that sort of thing because, you know, for some people, you know, it, it was traumatic for everybody. You know, if you're old enough to recognize what was happening. But, you know, some sure. people did have an easier time. And yet they still emotionally suffered. And, of course, everybody had to listen to all those screams, you know, of all the people dying. But, you know, for some people, you went up on deck and they said, would you please get in this lifeboat? And you did. And you got away and you had plenty of room. And, you know, you were warm enough. And, you know, then the ship goes down and suddenly you're hearing all these screams. And so it turns into something horrible, whereas other people, you know, had obviously, you know, separated from family members and, you know, like maybe their lifeboat was too crowded and they thought it was going to overturn. And, you know, there was something, you know, things like that, that you know, it was, you know, more chaotic towards the end right. and everybody had a different experience. And so, you know, for some people, they probably, you know, look back. And I think it was even one of the Irish girls said, you know, to her when she wrote in a letter and said, you'll think I'm horrible to say this, but I'm kind of glad I went through it. You know, because I'll never experience anything like that again. You know? <laughs> it's not, it's, it's funny. It is, it is. But, but it's everybody's in, in, in a way thinking that way is almost a form of hysteria. I agree. You know, that, you know, it's like, wow, I was there kind of thing. And it's emotionally how you're dealing with it versus I've lost so many of my friends. They're dead now, you know, this kind of thing. And everybody has, you know, you have to, you have to look at it with your own perspective to help you get through it. And some people do focus too, too well, I say too much for them, we'll say, on the trauma to where they really suffered emotionally, just horribly for it. Yeah, that's the danger too. And I've, I've brought this up several times on my show where, you know, you didn't get, you didn't get off the Carpathia and go talk to someone who's like, we're so sorry this happened to you. Here is a blanket. Here are some snacks. And we're going to get you to our mental health counselor right away. Don't worry about your daughter. She's going to go to our daycare center. It's all going to be fine. Like they didn't, that wasn't how it, it happened. Not at all. No. <laughs> the resources just weren't there to handle the, yeah. not just the immediate needs of, oh, you need a blanket, but they weren't there to handle. You're clearly traumatized. Uh, we need to take care of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was funny. There was, there was one lady and her daughter who survived it and, the daughter later said, we just went on, you know, because they weren't, they didn't lose anybody, you know, I mean, some people they knew on the ship or whatever, but no family members. It was just the two of them together. And they were coming over for her, the younger lady, the brother's, you know, graduation from college. And she said, you know, we had these family gatherings we still had to go to. We had to go to the graduation and we just, you know, kind of replaced our wardrobes and went on. But apparently then Several years later, the just well, she was 16 at the time, but you know, several years later, she did finally have a nervous breakdown, and so I think there was some delayed trauma there, you know, that always was kind of in the back of her mind that she didn't deal with, and then finally, maybe because of the trauma of World War One, caught up with her, you know, that sort of thing. It just finally kind of hit her. 
I just keep forgetting that the world exploded a few years later. And well, so yeah. yeah. In fact, I think this woman, I think the brother, who I, I'm not, I'm going to swear to it, but you know, they went to his college graduation and mm-hmm. I think he died in the flu epidemic. Oh my gosh. And so, you know, he wasn't on the Titanic with them, but they lost him anyway, kind of thing. And so, you know, things like that maybe were what contributed her to this breakdown later. But I knew another lady whose mother and grandparents were on the ship and her grandfather was lost. And she said her mother, her grandmother just put it behind her and wouldn't talk about it. Whereas her, her mother had to talk about it. It was pretty much an emotional mess. The doctor had to come to the house every day. And I said to her, so really, your mother had a nervous breakdown. Well, I mean, this woman was still of that era where you didn't admit to emotional. She said, oh, no, no, not a nervous breakdown. <laughs> but I want to say, well, it sure sounds like yeah. it. You know, but I wasn't going to argue with her because uh, you know, <laughs> there was that stigma of a nervous yeah. breakdown implies a mental health you know, issue. But, you know, you weren't allowed to have those, but you could still be upset about the Titanic. Well, that was an understandable thing to be upset about, I think. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. But it, it's just so interesting to think about how you handle that. I mean, to be perfectly fair, it's not like we handle grief perfectly now or trauma no. perfectly now. Well, everybody's different. And then see, back in the you know 60s, they thought everybody had to talk about it. And people still mm-hmm. think so today. Or 60 years later, people still think that. And by the 1970s, they knew everybody's different. And again, this mother and daughter situation, the the lady who couldn't stop talking about it and mm-hmm. the doctor had to come and, and yet her mother wouldn't talk about it. So they each dealt with it differently. The one had to verbalize it to get over it. Her mother couldn't because verbalizing it refreshed it for her. And they each, even though they were mother and daughter, they each had a separate direction they took with it. And that's how they dealt with it. And they know today, everybody grieves, everybody suffers, everybody recovers in their own way it's just Mm -hmm. you've got to figure out what that is so telling somebody that they have to talk about it and get it out you could be doing more harm than good if it's better for them to just put it behind them and not even think about it that's what they should do and we've heard i think i've heard a couple stories and i can't attribute them to anyone's name of people later in life finding out my insert relative here was on the titanic and just never spoke about it until later in life because they couldn't yes and that that was common yeah Mm -hmm. I, i knew a lady in Santa Barbara, who was on the Titanic, she was 12. And her daughter told me when I was young, she said, I knew my mother had grown up in India. And I thought that was so cool. And she said, but I knew she was in some shipwreck. It never occurred to me. It was the Titanic. And so she was a child before she found out that her mother was on the Titanic. And it it upset her mother to know that the neighbors knew some of them did. Like her, this woman's brother came home one day and asked his mother, he said, my teacher wants you to come and talk to our class about the Titanic. And she just blew up. It's like, well, how does your teacher know? You know, how did she find out? Because she didn't want to talk about it. It took her about 70 years to get to where she could really talk about it. I don't blame people for that. I mean, we, people go through tragedies now that they can't talk about, even, you know, having these understandings of different forms of behavioral therapy, different forms forms of grief therapy, different forms, mm-hmm. diff- and understanding that grief isn't linear, that recovery is non-linear. Yes. Even with all of those things, we just don't have a perfect way of handling trauma because you know, I think there is no perfect way to handle trauma, but you know, we've definitely learned a lot in the past decades or so. My dog has something to say about that, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I have a neighbor or had a neighbor, a friend of mine and her father, and he only just died a few years ago in his nineties. And he never talked about World War II. You know, he served overseas and he just wouldn't talk about it. And yet others, you know, I mean, there obviously aren't very many left, but, you know, they'll talk about it to this day and, you know, they got through it and good or bad, you know, they'll discuss it. But 
whatever he went through, he would not talk about it. And again, it's, un- it's understandable. And it, it's, it's also kind of a pity in a way, you know, we talk about learning the stories of people and you only learn people's stories if they're willing to open up, but you know, yeah. it, it's, it, you can't as much as it might be quote unquote cool to force people to be like, tell me your story. It's important. But you know, we can't, we can't demand that people no, no, you're share right anything about that with the, with, with the world. And we're privileged and honored, especially I imagine like I've, by the time I got around to Titanic, all this, all the survivors have passed. So I've, I've never met any of them and the, unless things go really, really wrong, I never will. But um, I imagine that, you know, it is a privilege to gather little, little stories to weave them together into your understanding mm-hmm. of an event, because, you know, they're the ones who have that knowledge and they can shed the tiny little details on things. I, I'm yeah. like making a detail up like that. It always smelled like lilies in this one hallway. Cause it had a lot of lilies in it. I mean, that's not a real thing, but just little yeah. details from people. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I knew one lady and thank heaven she lived as long as she did that we got her story because in the movie of course the boat that goes back and rescues rose and a few other people out of the water mm-hmm. every all the crewmen in that boat said we took all the women and put them in other boats this lady and her mother were in that lifeboat when it went back they did not get out she was you know flat, i just said so you know i asked her when i first met her what boat were you transferred to when if you were in that boat she said i wasn't transferred and i said so you went back among the bodies and she said yes and I let it drop because I felt that might be, you know, a really horrible thing to ask her about because it was so, you know, hard to just row through all those bodies. And, but her children have confirmed, they said when they were little, you know, their mother would talk about it and they'd pick out a cry in the night and row towards it and it would die before they get there. And there is no reason to believe that this woman made that up. You know, she was a perfectly honest woman. She obviously told her children this before the Titanic was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, everything I ever knew her to say about the Titanic was very honest. And now that she's gone, of course, I regret that maybe I should have pushed a little <laughs> bit more for a few more details. And, and me, but also, I, I wish I had asked her, you know, do you think you have a reason why the crew members all said all the women were transferred out? Or did they ask you not to say anything at the time? Because even she and her mother both gave interviews in 1912 and they didn't mention mm-hmm. it. They never said they were transferred to another boat, but they never said we went back among the bodies. And I wish I pressed a little bit more about that. And I just, but she lived over in England and I didn't get to visit her as often as I would have liked. Right. And so, but I'm so glad that she did share that because it does add that one little aspect to the sinking that they didn't get all of the women out of that boat when they went back. And there was actually another survivor who wrote in the letter how they transferred all the women out. And then she wrote, well, as many as they could. And so she implied that not all the women were transferred out. And here was a woman who was one who wasn't and went back. And I wish I'd asked her a bit more. But if if she hadn't spoken up, probably nobody would have really taken that seriously. And they would have thought only men were in that boat when it went back and rescued those people. I can see how that happened, too. You know, you're trying to move people around. You have a limited window of time, you know, taking everyone too long to get from boat to boat. It's like, it's, we already waited five minutes. If you're still in this boat, you're coming with us. Yeah, exactly. Or we don't, yeah, we don't have time to wait. And they probably mm-hmm. didn't realize how traumatic it was going to be. And he probably was very sorry that he exposed women to this. And so, you know, they they went back and, and of course, you know, this woman's father and her mother's husband, you know, was there somewhere and they didn't see him or anything, but, you know, they ran that risk that what if they encounter his body and, you know, stranger coincidences have happened, but at least it didn't to them, which is good. I didn't think about that until just now, you know, 
and crewmen in the boat must have seen some of their fellows as they rode through. Maybe, yeah. I mean, you could almost you almost hope they didn't. And in, in a yeah, weird, I, I agree. Yeah, that they didn't recognize anybody. That yeah. You almost hope that it's in a cosmic way. You're not like, oh, there's Murdoch. I wondered where he went. It's like you yeah. <laughs> I just pulled his name out of nowhere. But it's sort of just you almost really hope that it was a mm, bunch of strangers. And not that that's easy. Yeah. or anything but i can mm-hmm. only imagine how haunting that must be to have to you know you wake up from a cold sweat in the middle of the night with your your bunk mate's face in your mind just yeah oh gosh there's so many things that you don't consider about the impact of the of the titanic and i think it's just so interesting to me like no matter how old i get and i'm not even that old there's always a new wave of people who are interested. I'm always meeting someone who's like, my son is interested. My daughter is writing a book, oh. not a book. I'm sorry, like a paper, you know, yeah. well, okay. my kids are starting it in school and they're really interested. And my friend um, had me over about a year ago to show the Cameron film to her daughter for the first time. Cause she was studying it in school and liked it. It's, it's so interesting to see new, new interests continually pop up in this really heavy and impactful story. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It's not to say that I don't encourage people to get interested. I think it's very interesting, but it, it's also surprising when I hear eight-year-olds. I'm like, you're not Paw Patrol? Titanic? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. Something we yeah. can talk about. It's funny. I remember years ago, you know, somebody saying to me, well, will the interest go away when the last survivor dies? And they <laughs> said, well, every year the Titanic Historical Society has more members than ever before. And every year there are fewer survivors. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and sure enough, it didn't. You know, it's bigger now than ever before, it seems. That's amazing. Yeah. I I am running running low on my time with you. So before I let you go, I it's a kind of a weird abstract question. But I guess, you know, because you're one of the, the big names in the Titanic community and as more people are coming in, what is what do you think that people should who are new or even old fans like what is something that we should just like always remember to keep in our in our in our brains like always it's important to always remember um boy I guess um you know I guess it's important to remember that it it was a human event you know that there were people involved there because it is a fascinating subject and I, I think that people need to remember that there were people involved and who they, you know, they suffered and, you know, the effects for years and years, financially, personally, whatever. And, you know, I think that's important to just remember that, you know, as, as cool as it is, you know, that they, it's, it's about a lot about people as well as not just the shipwreck itself, but what people went through. Yeah. And last question. Um, obviously, I know your book, uh, Titanic and Illustrated History. You also have several other books, but are you working on anything now or mostly just helping out the, the Historical Society touring uh, around? Yeah, just mostly helping out the Society. I answer questions, things like that as they come in. Um, not really working on anything in particular right now, no. I mean, you deserve a break, honestly. You've, 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 been, you've been doing work for decades and decades and decades. You deserve a chance to let other people do it for a little while. Yeah. Well, I will say one thing about the movie coming out is it brought in so many people that we now have people who specialize in different aspects of the sinking. And you might get somebody who specializes just in Murdoch or somebody who just specializes in the way the ship broke up or something like that. And so fortunately now there are people who can do more in-depth research because, you know, no one person can live long enough to study everything that happened at night. That's true. It is a basic impossibility um, to study everything that happened on that night to remember. Yes. Yes. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sorry that I was late. I would offer an excuse if I had one. I don't. It's just that I got the times wrong. I, but thank you so much for coming on. It You're very welcome. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we will see everyone next time. Right. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word. Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C, T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!